Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club, connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Today's show is mind-blowing. We're catching up with Cub member Giles Donovan. Giles was the founder of netregistry.com, which at the time was uh, one of, if not the largest website domain provider in the country. After exiting, Giles then uh, purchased a company called Quad Bike King, which is based out of Port Stephens, is a quad bike touring company of which he has completely uh, reshaped and dominated in the industry up there. Please get your pen, get your notepad and get ready to be writing some shit down because he's about to drop some serious, serious lesson bombs on all of us. This was a brilliant conversation. I learned so much. So I hope you enjoy the show too. And we're live. Welcome to the show, Giles. How are you? Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm concerned, Daniel, because uh, this afternoon my wife is going to be cutting my hair. And, um, <laughs> it's going to be a new step in the direction of uh, having uh, you know my uh, domestic uh, hair styling. Yeah, well, you you actually take you're evolving. You're going to the next level as far as isolation. You know, I I haven't made that on the, on the, this morning's um, team chat. Uh, Alice from you know Alice from Cubs. She goes. Yeah. Daniel, you look like Pablo Escobar. Your hair's all pushed back. I, I look like a, a Colombian drug lord at the moment. I know. Well, it's becoming a, a common concern on the <laughs> Zoom meetings with everybody because it's getting wilder and wilder. And I don't, I don't really sign up to the idea. I want to have my, um, you know, barber leaning over me for half an hour. But uh, you know, we're the, almost the only country I think in the world which uh, still allows you to go to hairdressers. Isn't it an odd thing though that they decided to do that? It's like they know that if we cancel that, everyone's going to look like a like a bushman, like yeah. a, sorry, caveman. Yeah, I mean. But we can't have that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, who, who knows why they came up with that policy. And mate, how long have you been a member of Cub now? Um, oh, God, it's about 14 months. Oh, Not that it? long. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't know. We actually haven't had the opportunity to get to know each other very well. So we're going to do it live today. We're going to do it in front of, in front sure of the world. I'm sure you'll get to know me a little bit better. Well, I've heard you're funny and incredibly, incredibly smart, which I'm excited to find out. And um, you, ha- you actually hosted a conversation uh, for some uh, a private boardroom, digital boardroom conversation with a group of members not too long ago. We did. Correct? We did one uh, yesterday. Um you know, generally on the topic of um, my experience actually in the tech wreck in the uh, year 2000, which I thought would be a good story to tell because my uh, revenue of the business that I owned at the time, Net Registry, dropped 75% in two months. Jeez, jeez. Well, we definitely want to hear that story today. And why don't you give, um, because I'd love to hear as well, a bit of an overview of, I guess, your, your, your career and how you've ended up where you are now and where you started, how you started. Yeah. Well, I don't know how far we want to go back, but but look, yeah, I, um, you know, I suppose my career as it's shaped out to be started uh, when I um, got into the internet in London. So um, I, I, I'd actually had a career in recruitment for quite a few years in the in England, as as we all know, a lot of recruitment like consultants all Brits are do. English. That's yeah. right. Um, so I'd, I'd got a bit bored of that. I went backpacking, and I came back and bumped into a friend of mine, Larry, and he. Uh, owned a, um, an internet business and said, why don't you come on board? I've sold all these websites. I need to get someone to recruit the team to actually do them. So um, I thought, right, that's a brilliant application of my, my, my skills. And we were an enormous web developer in London at the time, 97. It was at the beginning of the internet uh, boom. Um, and also the business sold domain names and web hosting and was uh, pretty big in that category as well. Um, in fact, we went on to be the largest domain and hosting company in Europe. We had a French office, and uh, which uh, and company was this one? This was Net Benefit. Okay. Um, so Larry was uh, a South African, and he had challenges um, getting his visa renewed. So he decided to go to Australia and asked me whether I wanted to come with him. Um, so I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, this is the time when people were going to make their, their money out of the internet. So we uh, jumped on a plane and we arrived in Australia. Um, there was a little bit of a love story there as well, Daniel, because when I was backpacking, I'd met a girl that, uh, um, that I'd fallen in love with and, um, she was Australian and I thought to myself, wow, if I go out to Sydney, I might uh, be able to rekindle that romance. 
So that woman is now my wife. Um, oh, how brilliant! Yeah. So um, it was a, that was a, that was a bit of an unexpected upside. Um, but we came out here and set up Net Registry, um, and uh, you know that was in the time when. Uh, the domain name industry was deregulating, so it was historically a monopoly with Melbourne IT who was responsible for selling all domain names. We were a reseller of theirs, but the industry was deregulating and it was a good time to get in and uh, the business exploded. And how did how, how did Melbourne IT become the monopoly? Was it uh, supported by government or was it um, they just were the first to market here in Australia in Concord? Well, look, it's an interesting uh, story of the history of the internet because um, there was a university professor at Melbourne University called Robert Eltz. Um, now, picture, you know, your cliched university um, lecturer with wild hair and Einstein red looking. jackets. And yeah, that's right. So this chap was in the computer department there and he was the first person to connect the internet to the broader internet. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's responsible for Australia becoming part of the internet. Um, so he was uh, given the responsibility of becoming the delegate authority for .au and he was allowed to do whatever he wanted with it. So he could decide um, which domain names were available under .au. So he decided, well, we're going to have .govau, .eduau, .idau, .asnau, um, whatever else is there. Um, and underneath that, those subdomains, uh, you could register other domain names. And he was responsible for authorizing those domains. So initially it was a bit of a free-for-all, um, but quickly he decided that actually if you wanted to own a domain name under comau or netau or orgau, it had to be an exact derivation of your company name. So you had to register, you know, cub.comau. Mm. You couldn't register business.comau because it isn't in your name and it's not an, an acronym. Um, so, Is that um, still the case? That, uh, that changed, um, but at the, for a long time that was the case. Now, he got flooded, obviously, with um, all these name applications. So he decided to give Melbourne IT, which was an IT incubator at the university, responsibility for registering uh, or controlling the ComAU and NetAU and AUGAU spaces. Um, and latterly all of them. Um, actually, that's not true. He didn't register all of them. GovAU was um, organised by another organisation and uh, so it was ED, EDUAU. Um, ultimately, GovAU and EDUAU were, and I'll continue to be managed by Net Registry, funnily enough, but um, Melbourne IT had all the commercial spaces. Um, so when we actually arrived in Australia, um, you know, Larry and I saw this opportunity because comma you and, and it was very much, you know, limited. You couldn't get these generic names. So we actually thought to ourselves, hey, we should go out and try and find out who owns au.com because in England, uk.com was quite a big competitor to co.uk. Um, so we bought that domain name off a New Zealander who, oddly enough, um, had a company called Abdul Yulaki. <laughs> And God knows why, because he was just, um, I forget his name, but he was, you know. Mike Jones. A, yeah, he was. He's like <laughs> Mike Jones. Um, anyway, we got hold of AU.com and uh, released uh, registrations under AU.com on a free-for-all basis. Anyone could register anything. Um, and to cut a long story short, we sold half a million dollars of them in the first week. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> It was great. And just because you opened up the floodgates, you said, hey, yeah. you can register whatever you want, come here, bang. That's right. Um, so that provided us obviously a strong platform for growth, you know, and we were um, a pair of guys that were very focused on advertising, driving our business and sales growth, driving our businesses. Uh, so, yeah, we went um, and pushed out a lot of advertising. Um, the market deregulated, you know, we were able to underprice Melbourne IT, um, domain name prices came down quite steeply uh, and growth followed it. So it was a boom time. So even though the price, uh, even though your product price went down, the quantity you were selling went up. So yeah. the, the company was, Completely. was still thriving. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a good time for early entrance to the domain name industry. What do you think the current um, boom is? Like, What's the current... Um, um, what would you call that, you know, opportunity? Uh, what would you On call that? Internet. Yeah, it's an, like an mm -hmm. internet opportunity. What's the next opportunity? What, what do you see it as? 
Oh my God! Well, if I knew the answer to that, of course, be, I'd be yeah. a billionaire. Um, <laughs> but look, I think that um, you know, uh, there's there's look, there's still a lot of disaggregation, isn't there, between um, you know um, business protocols like you know Apple and Google and everyone fighting over everything else. But I think that the the, the you know the control of the home automation uh, industry is going to be something that is uh, going to be driving a lot of um, internet growth because if you own the operating system and the hardware as we all know you know that is a good grounds for a future opportunity and i don't think there's much leadership being shown in that particular industry sector at this point great insight and so where did you end up with net registry did you end up selling well look um you know that's that's probably the end of the story. But if we what was were, the scale? We were, what was the scale it kind of got to? Um, oh, look! At the end, you know, the business was, um, um, you know, was was doing about thirty, forty million dollars a year. Um, what year was that? This was in two thousand and forty. Yeah. Um, so we we had built this business over out of acquisition. So we were, um, you know, an aggressive acquisition business. But unlike uh, most IT acquisitions. Um, you'd be perhaps surprised to learn that they're very rarely integrated onto a single platform. So we did actually build a platform uh, in the very early days in 1999 that was actually probably was a cloud hosting platform long before people even hadn't thought about it. Um, it was quite ahead of its time. Um, and, uh, yeah, we integrated all those businesses onto that platform um, and, um at the very end, you know, we were trying to buy Melbourne IT. So we tried to buy them. Uh, that fell over. They tried to buy us. That fell over. We tried to buy them. And at that point, I was furious. Um, I said to Larry, you know, I don't want to deal with them anymore. Um, I can't stand it. Um, but actually, um, you know, they the CFO came to see us because he was quite um, – uh, they were concerned. They, they, you know, they hadn't uh, obviously bought us or we bought them. They They – had announced to the market some good news which had fallen over um, and uh, their, their their IT infrastructure project to um, get Melbourne IT onto a new platform was failing um, and they felt that that should probably be announced in the market. So there was a bad news day uh, for them and um, so they were extremely keen to buy Net Registry because then they could, you know, sell a story where we would actually dispense with that uh, IT inf- inf- infrastructure and, um, you know, them onto our platform um this put us in a strong negotiating position we extracted a, a, a higher price and um than was probably deserved at the time but um it was uh you know just over 50 million um by the time you know um, and that's how you exited so they ended, up, exited. they ended up taking so, you out because they needed some mm. some a good position and just to put the third the the revenue in perspective mm. to what was the average price per domain well, you know, when we started selling domain names in '97, um, they were three hundred dollars, um, and at the end, they were about eighteen. So to be to to be generating forty million dollars worth of revenue with an average price, sale price of eighteen dollars, mm. you're selling you're selling a lot of of domains, and yeah. and the cost the cost your product cost is very low, isn't it? Because there's no no, not the product cost product. of domain names was quite high. I mean, oh, there was, was not very much margin in domain names. But you've got to remember we were – look, oh. we were a big domain name player, but we were also, um, you know, probably the biggest hosting company um, for small business hosting. We were the, probably the biggest Google advertising management business. We bought a big Google advertising business. It came with one of our hosting acquisitions. Um, we were also, you know, we had probably over a thousand people on our search engine optimization problem, probably program. Probably made us the biggest in that category. We so had what do you mean? Websites a week. What do you mean by search engine optimization program? It was that you were helping companies with their SEO, or you had yeah. your own little mini Google? No, we had our. We were helping companies with SEO. With their search engine and SEO. then, can you t- teach me about where does the cost come? The product cost come for you in regards to the domains. Well, there is a uh, the, the, so um, the, the, the the regulator Alda they take a number of dollars mm-hmm. to keep maintain their business. The uh, the registry operator took a lot of fat out of the business, um, which the uh, you know which has changed over time. But they they take a they take a cut, um, and then the registrar we would we were one of the fifteen odd registrars. Um, you know we would 
take a percentage as well. But actually, you know, domain name acquisition is all about acquiring customers and then you sell them hosting services on top and that's where you're... You start up selling them. Yeah. So like yeah. the companies like GoDaddy and... Um, yeah, uh, with the cra- crazy domains and are they? Is that a similar model? Well, the model has changed because the market has matured. It's consolidated. There's a lot of um, you know very large players in this industry nowadays. And actually, what they're starting to do now is increase the renewal cost of domain names to be quite high. So the profit is coming back into the business. Oh, good. So, That's pretty rare in an industry, isn't it? Normally, the profit will go down. Uh, especially with something like the internet, as it gets more regulated, perhaps. Well, so I for don't it to know, go back you, know, you think about, say, internet access. Do you remember the days when we all, you know, that was pretty expensive? It was probably about forty-five dollars a month, and it went down to about ten, and now we all pay about sixty. So, I mean, so it happens. Yeah, it does happen, especially with technology when it consolidates. You know. And and so then after that, what you because you're in a completely different business now. Yes, look, I was very pleased to um, get out of that business. I mean, I, I, I learned a lot and I had some great experiences there. But, you know, when you are actually competing in an industry where price is um, getting ravished all the time, it is a, it's a struggle, you know, um, to keep going. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, when I got out of that industry, obviously I, I spent a little bit of time uh, relaxing, but I realised that, uh, you know, relaxing is a, it's a very expensive uh, occupation. Yeah. So I thought, right, I better buy something because I need the income. So I was looking around for um, a business which was, um, you know, obviously pretty sizable. I didn't want to um, buy something that was a startup. Um, I wanted to have something that was had some considerable profits because I felt, well, if I'm going to buy into something I don't know much about, I've got to have some space to make some mistakes. Um, but uh, what I really wanted to do, the third thing I was looking for, which is a challenging one, is to find a business that, um, you know, could uh, defend itself um, in a competitive market. Um, so, you know, I, I found this business Quad Bike King up in um, Port Stephens. It's uh, Australia's largest quad bike tourism business. And its defensible market position was that it was one of only 19 commercial operators licensed to operate on the beach there. And in the land management plan for that beach, which is owned by the local Aboriginal tribe, they have specifically said that they are not going to let any new entrants onto the beach, commercial entrants. And in fact, if one of them closes shop, they'll have 18 commercial businesses. New South Wales Parks and Wildlife are responsible for managing the beach under that plan. And so I felt very confident that the monopoly that was there would continue. So I bought it. Um, and why was – I mean, obviously that's important to look for something that has uh, that has, is def- has a good defence in a competitive market. Mm. But – Hard. There are not it, many businesses well, like the, that. Well, I have two questions then. How did you go about discovering – obviously that's quite an obvious – I mean, it would have been hard to find, I can imagine. Mm. But how do you look at an company or an industry and say, oh, I can create a, a good defense in that market and um, – and because you went into a completely random business. It went from uh, domains to quad biking. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get into a traditional business. I actually, um, you know, think IT is a very risky um area to be in um unnecessarily risky you know explain um, please uh, well look i've i've you know um i probably had a two thousand people in my life come to me and say something along the lines of hold charles i've got a business idea can i um, get your advice and they always have uh an idea that is new and i always say to them well look you know that's obviously very risky um because you know if you you can just buy uh, any business, if you're confident you can run it better than the competitors in that local area, you can succeed. So if you think, uh, you know, um, you can bring a lot of value to a business like um, uh, a mechanics workshop, for example, right? So that's usually um, a disorganized kind of business. It's kind of hard to get them on the phone. Um and you can come in there and provide a superior service and um, have a very successful mechanics workshop. You know, you can you can buy these businesses at two times earnings. I, I paid two times earnings for Quad Bike King. You know, this was a business that was making a few hundred thousand dollars a year, and it cost me two times earnings. Now, that's a sweet deal. But I guess it's a different angle because you you may not be looking to scale and exit at a big at a big price. You may be looking just for some good cash flow year on year from well, that that's business, and that's the trade off. I was also looking for yeah, yeah, good cash flow, and but that's what I mean. That was the trade off. So well, 
I'm not going to scale this quad bike thing everywhere. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I did, but okay, that was, <laughs> okay. That was a mistake. Fuck, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong more than I'm right. So, so, but my my point: you can't scale a quad bike business as easily as you can scale a web business. No, that's right. Um, yeah, but um, so they're good for cash flow, and you can knock out the competition easier though, because there's less of it. You're more focused in one area. For example, your competition are the people on on the beach or on, in that region. Mm. You're not competing with quad bike companies in the US. No, that's right. Well, you know, I regarded myself as competing with a local, lot of local tourism operators that are um, owner-operated. Uh, the, the owner had built that business up from scratch um, and hadn't had the benefit of a lot of business experience to compete um, with me. So I was kind of comfortable with a competitive environment out mm-hmm. there. Um, so, look, I think the problem about IT as an industry is that, you know, it's quite obvious that... Um, as those businesses develop, you know, large, well-heeled entrants come into the market and start to dominate it. And um, at the end of the day, there's only two or three of them left standing. And, and they just buy it, everyone else out. And they just buy everyone else out. So, you know, in Australia, you know, we were aware of the fact that, um, you know, we were the key um, acquirer, you know, and everyone in the industry sector knew that they had to be acquired by a net registry or risk getting beaten into the ground. It's quite hard to compete with, you know, people that have got advertising on buses and billboards and everywhere. And everywhere. They're visible everywhere. And um, was the power of your brand a really big um, point of difference for, for you guys in, in the competition? Was your brand better known? Look, you know, yeah, brand is king. Um, uh, you know, when I went, when I bought Quad Bike King, I remember saying to all my friends, how many times do you go to Port Stephens? So I got answers from one to a hundred, and I said, "Did you know that you can go on a quad bike tour on the beach there?" And absolutely every single one of them said no, but that sounds really good. And I thought to myself, "Well, there's some serious upside here." Um, so when I got there, um, you know, Port Stephens at the time uh, had quite a proliferation of, um, you know, those those. Um, big billboards sitting on the back of uh, trailers sitting in fields around the place and people had been uh, putting adverts up on telegraph poles, etc. So um, I had um, five of those built, the, the big trailer advertisers, and I had um, 60 um, large two-by-one-metre um, ACM panel adverts uh, created for my business. And one day I went out there with uh, – I towed those trailers into various fields around the area and I went out with uh, – my screwdriver and I put up 60 of these panels on every uh, sign face. And if you went into uh, Port Stephens, you sure as hell knew you, you, knew about you could it, go quad biking on the beach. Um, so, look, uh, about a year or so later, the council persuaded me that I better take those down. Um, but I still do own some big billboards out there and, um, you know, I, I, I've bought to every single bus stop in the entire area. Um, so you can't go to Port Stephens Without going quad biking, you 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 can't go there without knowing knowing that leases about. <laughs> exist, you know. And I've always had the feeling that my favourite customer prospect right now is somebody who's in Port Stephens. Yeah. Um. So I want to make sure that if you're there, yeah. you can see it. And so, just getting back to Net Registry, then mm. you took the company. What what year was it founded? Ninety seven. And so you took it through the uh, tech rec, you, you you called it. And can you just explain to us quickly what the tech rec was as well? Oh, well, the tech rec was um, an explosion in appetite for all things internet. Um, and I, I remember at the time that the, um, you know, the Australian newspaper, for example, used to have a Tuesday IT section that was probably 50 pages. It, it, people's appetite for IT and internet stories was huge. Valuations were soaring. Um, we were actually undergoing an IPO at a valuation of 300 million. Mm-hmm. We had um, 10 consultants from Anderson Anderson's in there. We had Baker and McKenzie, I think it is, law firm working for us. We had BNP Capital Markets leading it. Uh, and I had actually decided to vacate the business and I was in Egypt at the time uh, with my um, my wife and my daughter thinking I'm never going to have to work again. Um, and, yeah, you know, things were very frothy. Our revenues were soaring at uh, Net Registry and then all of a sudden everyone realised that it was all bullshit. 
you know, these valuations were unsustainable um, and um, the, you know, the appetite for internet IPOs and stocks floundered and um, crashed and burned. Um, Why? Why? Why did that happen? Well, because it was just, um, you know, it's a bit like the Dutch tulip story, you know, all of a sudden everyone realises that tulips just simply aren't worth, you know, <laughs> uh, the price of a small house. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we've seen these crash and burns before, you know, it's the nature of financial markets. Um, the um, I got a call from my parents saying, Larry's trying to get hold of you. And I rang up Larry, my business partner, and he said, I don't think we're going to make payroll at the end of the month. My jaw dropped. I went, oh, my God. I had to fly home. And, um, you know, we we ended up firing two-thirds. I fired two-thirds of the staff um, at the door one day. And um, How do you do that? Did you just stand in the room like they do on TV and be like, everybody, you've lost your job? <laughs> no, I stood at the top of the staircase because we were on the first floor of some building and as everyone came up, I said, I'm sorry, but um, we can't afford to employ you anymore. Look. To be honest, and how did everyone, it feel? Knew, everyone knew that was okay. coming. But how um, did it feel to do it anyway? Was it? Oh, it's obviously a difficult kind of um, experience or were you impartial to it because you knew the company was necessary for the company's survival? Well, look, you know, um, there was probably 75 staff there at the time, so I had to fire 50 of them. I think by the time you got first, the first five or six, it starts to get... You know, um, yeah, um, but um, look, it was a shame to lose a lot of good people. But um, there was, there was, you know, a few lessons I learned from that experience, and one of them was that, um, uh, you know, we we kept obviously all the people we thought were the most talented, and they weren't necessarily the most senior, and um, they filled the gap uh, incredibly effectively. They worked very hard. Um, they um, Took it. There was a career opportunity that they immediately filled, which was to fill the shoes of all their bosses. Um, and it was incredibly uh, interesting to see that, you know, even though we'd lost two thirds of our staff, you did wonder whether you'd made a difference. And you realised that actually, you know, we probably had a lot of fat there. Um, so I thought that was a pretty interesting for us. And um, well, what, know, what were the lessons in that then? Because what you just said is that you. Um, you kept the most talented, even if they weren't the highest position, which means that you had someone more talented, you know, being under underneath someone less talented. Is there a reason that was happening? Well, I think I think that if you pay, if you take, uh, you know, if you, if you can, talented people can grow a lot quicker than you allow them, mm -hmm. and you, it's difficult to allow talented people to grow unchecked because you know the business just doesn't have the capacity to offer endless, you know. Mm -hmm. um, promotional opportunities um but in this particular case where we had actually cut so much out of the business all this opportunity was there and people filled it very rapidly so you ended up with a better um you know uh, management team and um and they were cheaper um but the other observation i noticed about staff in that period was that um there were a lot of people on the job market right then as there are right now. Um, and uh, I actually turned around to Larry and I said, look, you know, we could take this further. You know, um, you know, we'd struggled to recruit a good sales team. And right now I said, I bet you there's some really good salespeople out there and no one advertising. So we went out and um, replaced most of them as well. And that was, um, that was an, another big pickup. Um, look, these were all horrible decisions at the time. But, you know, you had to fight hard when you're in that position. Um, you know, not only did our revenue go from... Uh, about 840 to 440 to 210 in those uh, in that short period but because we had all those consultants there and everything we um, were 1.3 million dollars in the red um, we couldn't afford to pay our debts um, so we also um, you know and this is another lesson I learned there was that um, uh, we dispensed with the accountant because he was quite expensive. And one of the guys in the sales team who had a background in bookkeeping who wanted to get back into accounting, uh, we made him the financial controller. And I said to I said to this chap, I said, mate, your job, uh, I don't really care whether the GST return is accurate, but what I do care is you don't pay anyone. You know, we're only going to pay the landlord and the staff and, you know, obvious utilities. Um, but everybody else, you've got to, you know, string them along forever. Um so that proved to be um, very effective. Um, you know, people aren't very good at chasing debts. Um, and so 
we did actually end up paying everybody off, but we didn't pay off 300,000 of those debts because those companies went under during the tech wreck. Um, the ATO, we just, uh, you know, stretched out that repayment schedule forever. Um, we did get sued by the news and Fairfax and the recruitment agencies. There were any people who threw letters at us. Um, and uh, I regret paying them off actually quickly because we probably should have let them take us to court and then arrived at a 24-month repayment schedule, which I'm sure the court would have allowed. Um, so we could have stretched that out further. But, you know, in these times when people are, you know, a bit concerned about finances, you can actually get tough on that kind of stuff. Um, the other mistake I learned about uh, this is that we didn't go cash flow positive quick enough. So, What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, you know... Uh, well, put it this way, when COVID came around this time around, on day two, I closed Quad Bike King. You know, I didn't wait one minute. Mm -hmm. You know, I said to the staff, look, I'm sorry, guys, but this isn't going to work out and I'm just closing the business. I cancelled the insurances. I, you know, we deregistered all the vehicles. We, um, yeah, did it hard, right? Just cut the door right there. So right now, you know, in this um, particular market, I'd be saying the same thing to people. You've got to start off thinking to yourself, you know, if I'm the last man standing, will I be cash flow positive? Um, and then ask yourself, can I afford to keep somebody else? Um, obviously, things have moved on, and actually, most of the staff that I've got at Quad Bank King are currently employed on their, their job, job keeper people. program, which is great, and they're busy working away at getting the business. Just, just quickly, I, I fully agree with that because I'm obviously have a lot of help from a lot of uh, incredibly smart business people in my life, which is pretty much how Cub's gotten to where it is. But um, when I called them for this, the, the first thing that one of them particularly said was, don't wait, don't wait. Mm -hmm. There's some people that need to go. If there's wages that need to be reduced, if there's things that need to be cancelled, if there's uh, contracts and things that – just do it now. It's like it doesn't matter if you if you if you've got the money to pay it right now. It doesn't matter. You need to do it now. Act now. Get ahead of the game. Ahead of the curve. And because really, you've got to store up your store up your food to survive the winter. You know, you, yeah, it's good advice. It is. Uh, you know, you, once you've been through. I mean, I've been through a few financial nightmares in my time. And uh, you know, tech wreck GFC. Those, those, you know, now we've got this current one. Um, yeah, acting fast is one of the things that comes with experience and. Um, you know, as I said before, all the staff, you know, if you're worried about the gaps being filled in your, um, you know, in your skills base, don't be. Um, and right now, you know, all those staff will be there when things come back. You possibly be able to recruit the same person to the same job. Um, you know, not that I'd necessarily recommend that, but the, um, but there will be lots of other people to fill those shoes. Mm. And what are the other big lessons you could, you could give us on, on uh, navigating through a financial crisis? Um. Well, look, I mean, you know, um, well, the three the three lessons, as I said, I think is that, uh, you know, you have got to uh, get cash flow positive immediately. You know? um, start selling again, you mean? Just start, no, no, start no, selling. No. Uh, look, you know, well, we were having a, we were, we were in yesterday's um, chat, you know, we were talking about that. Look, if you need to fire the whole sales team because there's no sales to be done, do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, that's unquestionably a good idea. If you've got no sales funnel, um, you know, and in this market, depending on what industry you're in, there's a good chance that, uh, you know, you're not going to regret the decision to, well, at least cull your sales team down to one. Um, so, um, yes, you've got to go cash flow positive. Um, you have uh, got to, you know, don't be afraid of, um, of that decision to cull all your staff. You will survive. You'd be amazed how resilient businesses are to keep going. Um, and, um, you know, think about replacing people with better people because they're out there. Mm. And, and it's the opportunity to do so. The opportunity is now. It's kind of like COVID's the ultimate excuse. You know, <laughs> anything that you needed to get done or wanted to get done or didn't need to pay or didn't want to, you can kind of use COVID uh, at the moment. You, you know, if you want to come out the other side of, of COVID stronger – then, you know, um, yeah, use the opportunity to get better staff. I mean, you know, we would do it when times are good. Why wouldn't you do it when times are bad? Yeah. 
And is there anything you can you could speak on in regards to just the mental state of going through that as the business owner, what you were thinking, how you were feeling, and and kind of what was able to get you through it? Because I, I I'm speaking to a lot of people. I know a lot of people feeling very bad right now. Yeah. Well, I think that you know. Um, your staff aren't going to be surprised that you're making hard decisions and honesty is obviously a good um, way to act right now. I mean, I've always been very open with staff. I tell them what I'm thinking and um, what my concerns are. Um, Not just with staff, I mean in general, navigating through a crisis. How did you stay strong-minded and stay uh, maintain being a good leader for yourself and, and the ones you, you do have? Well, look, I think that, you know, um, I, I made early steps that um, perhaps a few of us, uh, you know, didn't make quick enough. I was straight into my local bowl shop on about day three and I bought 10 cases of Peroni. <laughs> and that was before you were limited in number of purchases. <laughs> and I'm still making my way through there. Um, so, uh, look, you know, I guess. So you've stocked up for the for the winner then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm, uh, you know, so I'm probably doing what we're all doing really, which is, uh, you know, getting out, doing some exercise, um, yeah, and um, drinking a bit of a booze. Yeah. It's been my system so far. And you're very experienced with, um, with lots of things so far I've learned, but one of the things we, we discussed was um, managing shareholders. Mm. You've had a big share registry from what I understand and, and that's a bit of an art that honestly until you had said it to me, I had never thought of, hey, no one knows how to manage that correctly. Well, who teaches you how to do that? I don't even know. Yeah. Well, look, yeah, so I, I, I yeah, we we definitely made some mistakes there. So, um, you know, in the very early days we did a friends and family round um, where, you know, a lot of our English relations, et cetera, piled a lot of money in. Uh, sadly, just ahead of that tech crack, they had a long wait to get paid back. But fortunately in those days, you know, the UK pound would buy you nearly $3. So yeah. when they exited at about $1.50, it was uh, actually turned out to be a half-decent return. Um, but, um, you know, we we brought in at that point in time, you know, I think maybe 23 shareholders. Um, and uh, you In know, that first round, in the friends and family. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because after that we didn't have any many additional shareholders, mm. um, you know, one. Um, but, you know, we, we felt comfortable because, you know, we had one of those shareholders agreements that uh, everyone has which says that if the majority of shareholders decide that they're going to make a decision like sell the business or raise some extra money, that the tag-along rights in that shareholders agreement will, won't require us to ask anyone else permission. Now, the problem about most lawyers that represent you know private equity firms and big public businesses is they will say that isn't good enough um they will say to their client you know you don't really want to let these founders make a decision that might penalize the minority shareholders just because you know it suits the business because it might be that that decision suits them and it's highly likely because the you know the the, the founders of the business are going to get a going to get maybe an increase in pay maybe they're going to get some share options none of these opportunities available to the minority shareholders they're getting dragged along into a deal which definitely suits the founders but might be construed uh, as a handicap to the minority shareholders so whenever we ever raised any money or sold the business every single one of these 24 shareholders had to sign their agreement to that clause and that was very challenging because they were all over the world and, you know, they weren't just in, um, in, in in England, but they were all over the place, quite often hard to get hold of. And when you're going through a transaction, we would would have had to ask them on at least three or four occasions to sign another amendment to the, yeah, you know, you the don't, shareholders' agreement. You don't want to be having a call 24 people every time you want to get something done. No. And what's worse is that um, on, on, you know, um, on one particular transaction, which was time critical and big, one of the minority shareholders said no. <laughs> and he was a banker. And I'm not going to say who it was, obviously. Um, but, you know, just outrageous. And we had to pay him off. So he got, it worked for him, I guess. He got, he got, he got some money. He did work for him. Um, but, you know, 
what you've got to be careful of, and I suppose this is the lesson here, is that, you know, if you have lots of people on your share register, don't underestimate the potential for one of them to cause you a lot of grief mm. um, and extract, uh, you know, some flesh out of you. Um, and this is why that when you, when you, what you'll find is that when you go into these negotiations with big PE firms, um, they're very loath to do business with you if you have lots of shareholders. I certainly would be. If I came yeah. across a business and they had given all their employees a few shares, I'd be going, oh, you know, that's a bit too hard. Well, uh, I agree. When, when, um, because Cup has been 100% mine for, for the longest of times until very recently. And when I was speaking to a few people and they found out, oh, it's just, just one person. Oh, that was like a big deal for them. They're like, oh, that's amazing. We just deal with you. And it was actually more attractive to, to, to raise money because there was one person that needs to, to um, get, that's not the case anymore, especially as we've gotten much bigger, but that was uh, attractive having, having less, uh, less people. And I will mention, I did use our member, Paul Miller, founding partner of the legal firm, firm oh, Deutsch Miller. Have you I met know, him? I know Paul very well. Well, he was fantastic and everything was brilliant. I would, I would recommend everyone to use Deutsch Miller. Mm, there you go. That's a great i got to put a sneaky member plug <laughs> whenever, whenever I can. It's, it's my job. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, it's, um, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, share option schemes are pro- probably similarly um, a tiresome overhead. If you want to reward staff, put them on a commission. Because then they are paid on, uh, they can't get lazy. If, they, if you've got a higher base and you sit back, you relax and you get paid regardless. If you need commission, you need to perform. Yeah, yeah. Yes, look, I, I, you know, yeah, you definitely don't want to give them script. One way that we've done it, because Cub's very, um, is a commi- it's a performance-based company, the whole team. And the way I've always framed it, which was always the truth as well, was that you know, this is an entrepreneurial company. You know, if you work at Cub, right, you have to have that entrepreneurial spirit. You need to have that risk for reward um, mentality. You know, you can have a bigger reward here, but you also have, there's a bit of risk. And I find when you put it like that, and there's a lot of companies that can have that entrepreneurial culture. We have it because we talk, we're dealing with um, people like yourselves all day. So that is the culture of, of just the company as a whole. But there's a lot of companies can frame it like that. You know, you can frame, look, this is the culture of our company, high, uh, some, some risk of not making huge money, mm. but but uh, but there's also the opportunity to to succeed big time. Well, look, I've got, uh, you know, there's um, one of the things we did at Net Registry, which I, I, you know, for a long time, and I have rarely, rarely seen this in other businesses, but, um, you know, I'll share this with you because this is, this is gold. Um, the uh, incentive scheme that we had for the sales team uh, was an escalating commission based on you passing various points of revenue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you had to bill 15 grand's worth of revenue before you made a cent. Um, but then you would get a commission, which uh, I forget the numbers, but let's say it was 3% on everything between 15 and 20 grand. Then it was 4% on everything between, you know, 20 and 25. And, and it went like that up to about nine. Mm-hmm. So every single time you pass through one of these five grand increments, you got a windfall bonus because the commission was applicable to everything you'd build that month, not just that 5,000, but the whole 25,000. Yeah, it's like crossing the gate. It's like, that's right. So, you know, one of the problems with salespeople is, uh, you know, they, they, they start to tool down in the last few days of the month because they think, ah, oh, you know, um, there's not much incentive for me to push it too much harder. And, you know, I might want to save up this, my sales pipeline for the first of the month, et cetera. But if you keep leaving these $5,000, you know, increments ahead of them, um, they 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 will push very hard to get through that next one. And uh, good salespeople will just want to get to the 9%. They're just not happy unless they're getting targeting that thing. So we found that uh, to be incredibly successful. Um, I love that idea because mm. otherwise if they're not doing too well, like if they're on the 3% and they're at the end of the month, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do so well. And I'm going to save sales for next month. I'm going to book my meetings for next month. In in your in that situation, they'd be like, "Oh no! If I can get five thousand more, I'll get four percent." Yeah, they get four percent. It's possible to get that. That's an extra one percent on 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 twenty thousand. You know, it's another two hundred dollar windfall. Um, not to be sniffed at. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, that was, and then when you get up to sort of the nine percent, which is like forty five grand or something, you get that extra one percent there. One percent on forty five grand is four hundred and fifty dollars. 
that's worth getting out of bed for. So yeah. people would work, you know, uh, and, and, the, and, and the other thing that this does is, of course, is it, it increases people's appetite as the month goes on because as people start to go through these boundaries, they get more and more excited. Um, so we found to be that very successful. Mm. But I, I'll share another piece of gold with you, right, because, you know, um, I suppose, you know, imagine you've got, uh, I mean, we were a, a call center, right? So we had, we uh, we didn't do any field sales. Um, we only relied on people ringing us up. And, um, you know, so you, you've got your first salesperson in there because you're sick of doing them yourself. And, um, you know, then to your irritation, um, whilst they're on the phone to your customer, one of your customers, another customer doesn't wait until the call is finished and they ring up and then all of a sudden he's sitting there waiting. So you think, oh, my God, I better get a second salesperson. So you get the second salesperson. And then uh, you find out that actually um, that's all working fine, but one of them goes on a lunch break. And uh, then the, the other guy's on the phone and the person phones in. You think, oh, bloody hell, I better get a third salesperson. So I have two people there at lunchtime, so you get a third one in. And then uh, and then you find out that actually staff have got this, uh, they've got a right to go on holiday. So one of them goes on holiday and you think, oh, my God, I'm back to the same problem. I better get a fourth person in. And then you're thinking, and then one of them resigns. You think, oh, bloody hell, I better get a fifth one because I've got to train him for one of them. One of them leaves. So then you've got five salespeople and actually really only needed one. So then you're thinking, okay, I better get them to do some outbound calls. And then what you find is that the phones don't ring at all because all five of them have got their finger over the button so that the second a call comes in and before anyone in the business can hear it, they've intercepted it. <laughs> because now you've got five salespeople chasing the commission that, you know, it would have been good if there was only one of them. Uh, and they're just waiting for that call. They don't want to do an outbound call because they don't want to miss the inbound call. It's easier sale. You've got this conundrum, which is you've got these five people that really can't make enough money um, unless they do outbound sales, but they don't want to do outbound sales. The person who's the highest earner there is the one that takes the most inbound sales. So you've got to come up with a program that incentivizes them to do outbound sales at the same time. Challenging, right? Now this this was I didn't. It took me probably fifteen years to crack this nut, but I'll share it with your uh, listeners today because this is really, really, um, really beneficial. If you want to operate a blended call center environment, which I think you know is good. Um, so I used to, uh, you know send the sales we, we created about um you know 15 outbound sales opportunities so for example customer bought a domain name yesterday didn't buy any web hosting didn't buy a website or anything else um you know you can ring this person and try and sell them something else that was one of them another one was this customer we know because we cookie them when they come on our websites and when they click off our emails. We know this customer was on our website yesterday. He was looking at the web design. He looked at more than two pages in the web design category and he didn't buy anything. Ring him. So these are pretty hot leads, you know. And these customers would go, oh, I'm glad you rang me because actually I was looking at your website. I was yesterday. just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's right. What a coincidence. Um, so we had all these outbound programs and um, every day I would send the, sale, the sales team, they'd automatically generate this uh, list of who you rang outbound, how much money you made um, within seven days and um, how, many, how much time you spent on the phone outbound, um, you know, and what your commission was from outbound sales, right? Now, you, it takes a while to get this up and running, right, because you've, you've got to change the culture of your sales team. But if you didn't spend 150 minutes on the phone every day at NetRegistry, I'd fire you. I don't care how good you are. If you don't spend 150 minutes talking... Then what are you doing? Then you are not going to reach your outbound sales commission target. I don't care who you are, you're out. So that's And, and you knew thing. that from the data. I knew that from so, the data. Yeah. And uh, what's more is I'd look at that data and I'd say to the sales manager, you need to go and have a word with what's-his-face because he isn't going to make his target. The other thing you had to do is a minimum of $10,000 a month from outbound sales, and that's hard. You have to be on the phone for 150 minutes to do that. Um, so, you know, they were very motivated to pursue that. And the other thing, of course, is I came around to them and said, you know how you like ringing all those people that registered a domain name yesterday and didn't buy anything? You're actually crap at it compared to the other people. You only make, 
you know, $7.50 every time you make one of those phone calls. But if you ring those people that, you know, were looking at the web design pages, you on average, you make $21 every time you ring them, even if they don't pick up the phone. So ring them. You know, you've only got to ring 500 of them a month and you'll get there. So, um, yeah, that that is how you turn five people who are doing bugger all and not making enough money to pay for themselves into a team that are making $50,000 a month minimum of outbound sales really? are as busy as hell. And then you can put six or seven or eight of them in there, you know. And the you more can actually them, build it up. Well, and the more of them that are there and the more ring, the calls they're making outbound, the more inbound calls are coming in, you know, the whole thing starts to feed itself. And so long as a salesperson is bringing in more money than they're costing, well, you can get as many as you want of them, no? Because they're making, they, they cost you X, but they're bringing in Y. And Y is more than X. Fuck, let's get 10 more. You can. You can scale them. You know, it, it, it is a, you know, it's an ongoing path. You've got to get good at recruitment. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you know, Did one you of the compromises get- you've got to make here is your best salespeople in the world won't do this job. But that is a that is a that is a compromise worth taking. What do you, what do you mean by that? They wouldn't do that particular job, or that they're so good that they start their own thing. They are so good that they're better off working for a business where their leads are inbound only. Uh, okay, hmm. so they'll find it an easier place. Yeah. Well, we used to have other divisions that they go. We'd put them in for that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, you know that kind of call center environment. You know, which is pushing people hard and, and getting a large volume of people in, you know, you, you've got to look for a certain type of person, someone who does what And what told. were your training programs? How did you manage the sales team? Well, look, the, the you know, um, they they would go through some technical training and, uh, you know, but, but largely, you know, we'd stick them on the phone so they'd listen to conversations, they'd pick it up as they were going along um, and, uh, you know, get them on the phones and have them ask questions, you know. Um, Nothing particularly clever. And and then you sold the business. Mm. Were there big lessons there? Were there were you happy with the, how how you did it, how you went? Are there um, is there knowledge or wisdom that you could impart onto myself and the listeners that would be beneficial for us as we go through the same process? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well look, um as much as it's a bit of pill to swallow because they're so bloody expensive, you just have to use a banking firm to do it for you. You know, you have to get an, a banking advisory business to sell you or your company. Um, Why is that? Because that's what and, they do. Well, because if you try and do it yourself, you will definitely extract a lower price. Um, but that that's not the biggest reason. The main reason that you should use an advisory firm is because you've got a much higher chance of completing the transaction. You know, um, Is that a statistic? Uh, certainly was for us. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing about the bankers is that, uh, and, and people who are dealing with bankers, like the people who are trying to invest in you or, uh, who are trying to acquire you, you know, there's, there's a lot of reputation at stake. You know, if you, um, are say some corporate and you're trying to buy someone and then you just sort of mess the deal up because you, you know, start changing the parameters at the last minute uh, and it falls over, you will get a reputation in the industry. Those bankers will make sure you've got it. Um, that will never see you sitting across the table from a, a, an advisory firm ever again. They will always go, well, we could sell it to that company. We could try and approach this company. But from in our experience, they are uh, bad people to deal with. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, those, those that happened advisors. to you? Were you bad to deal with or were you good to deal with? No, no, we were. No, no, not at all. I mean, we, we um, you know, we entered, uh, um, you know, we bought a lot of companies, as you know. And, yeah, no, we were pretty straight straight about it. You know, we gave people the price and we stuck to it. We didn't mess them around. Again, you know, the domain industry is tiny. Everyone knows each other. You can't screw around screw around too much if you want to keep going in that field. Um, Reputation in business is a big, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a. To ice, it's not an icebreaker. What's it, what's it called? It's a breaker when you can't. To but you know, if you're trying to buy a business off somebody who's about to exit that industry, you don't really care about them. But if they've got a banking firm in between, you don't want to um, upset the banking firm because they're likely to be a specialist in that area. They should be, otherwise, you shouldn't have employed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, they they are well known in that sector, and no one who's dealing with them 
who's trying to buy your business is going to want to upset them. And it's, you know, it's very easy at the last minute to sort of just say, oh, by the way, we've decided to drop the price. And, and how big does parameters. the business have to be when you start looking at uh, uh, getting the bankers involved for a sale? Would you recommend it after, you know, a valuation of 10 plus, 100 plus, or could be whenever? Well, look, no one tries to sell their house without using a real estate agent. Um, but, um, you know, okay, yeah, that's I, I think that, uh, you know, look, I think the, the you know, uh, there's a, th- a few things I found out about, uh, you know, getting investors in that uh, it helped to have advisors there. So, for example, um, you know, when you take a private equity investment, not quite the same thing as selling the business, but... Um, you know, the private equity investor will insist, insist on a lot of minority shareholder protections to protect them from you screwing them over. So, for example, they won't let you sell the business for a dollar to your cousin without their permission. Mm-hmm. They won't let you uh, pay yourself a bonus without their permission or get a pay rise or um, change the business plan or buy anything over $50,000 or, you know, and it goes on and on. They basically take all the control. And when you're a small business owner, you're going, oh, I don't know about that. You're only going to be a 10% shareholder. Mm. Um, but it helps have an advisor there because they'll say, look, that's absolutely standard. That is 100% standard. You can and if go you didn't have the advisor, you might have lost that investment from that strong firm because you weren't sure if that was normal. Yeah, you didn't trust them. Um, but it is totally normal. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not abused. Mm-hmm. But it uh, is expected. Um, Brilliant, great advice. So yeah, look, I think um, yeah. When when would you use advice as well? Um, you know the, the, the I you know yeah. It look obviously if the transaction size is super small, it sort of seems expensive to use the advisors. But it 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 does help because it just uh, ultimately it, it helps to get the deal completed, and that's the biggest risk in selling and, anything. And that's the goal. We want to get the deal done. What's the best way to short, to surefire way to get the deal done? It's probably with an advisor. Yeah. And that's the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So selling your business, using an advisor, what else? Um, yeah, I, that, uh, the, the other thing advisors do will, will help you on structuring as well. I remember when I bought Quad Bike King, I said to the guy, I said, look, I really want to uh, create a purchase agreement that sees me value all the assets and then the goodwill separately. Um and that was great for me because then I could depreciate the assets and had evidence of what they were worth. Um, but it was a bad deal for him because he had to pay GST on it and he didn't know that. And if he had an advisor, he would G- have known. And I got a GST refund, yeah. So, okay. um, you know, yeah. So, so that's where tread they, carefully. Yeah, that's where they come. And just before we finish up, I wanted to track back slightly to something um, that we didn't go into as much detail as, as I'd be really curious about, which is trying to figure out uh, if a business is uh, has a good defensive position, mm. whether it be whether it be looking to buy one or just looking to look at your own business. Like for me, I could look at Cub. What is our defensive position? How would you go, how would you approach that? How do you look at that? That's a that's a that's a tricky question. I wish you'd asked me that last week so I could come up with a good answer. But um, oh, look, we can get you back on the show. Of, <laughs> we can focus on that one. A lot of um, you know, a lot of businesses have defensive positions by nature of say their geography. So say you own a cafe that sits that faces the beach at Bondi. You know, um, that's a very defensive position because you know you can't be squeezed out by other cafes setting up around the corner. Um, you know, if you are in a uh, service industry um, and you're trying to create a defensive position, um, you know, it's a lot more difficult. You know, there's there's hard to it's hard to, for Cub to defend itself from another networking business starting up around the corner. Uh, we've got a solid um, defensive position. I can tell you that. I could talk about it, but but well, you talk about that. Let me yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk about a few a few mm. a few a few of the – I don't want to give away Cub secrets, so I can't go too much detail about it. But I'll talk about a few of the things that I've been told hmm. um, in regards to, to, to business. And um, a lot of them is where, how you position your business, the brand positioning, yeah. is how you position yourself in comparison to the competition. So if your competition are all really old, been around a long time, you're the new innovator. 
if the if you are the first, well, then you're the first. If you've been around a long time, or so every you know every company, if it's a service uh, a service based business, even or whatever they are, they all have a uniqueness. It's about identifying, I guess, that uniqueness and positioning yourself against the the current market. Yeah. And pushing that, promoting that, understand who's going to be the people, who are the people that want that uh, that 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 position is going to appeal to, and then marketing to them. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, um, brand identity obviously is something I I, I you know um, I love. You know, I use a brand consultant every business I've bought or started. I've used a brand consultant to help you know uh, identify a good brand strategy for me. Um, and you know, we probably know a few of these. These secrets like, you know, if you're going to be the cheapest, use orange. If you're going to be the exciting, be red. If you're going to be the most conservative, do blue. And if you want to be, uh, you know, the healthiest, be green. Um, I don't know that it leaves you – I don't think I don't think it's a defensive strategy because in a very competitive market there are lots of, uh, um, you know, the people can – they can get an orange logo and call themselves cheap. Yeah, you know? I'm not so, so much uh, talking about logo. I'm not so much talking about – Color. I'm, I'm, I actually had a conversation with a brand person the other day. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were, they were going on about, oh, this is the wrong colors to use. This is the wrong thing. We hadn't even employed them or anything like that. It was just a conversation. And I thought about what they were saying. And I was like, okay, I understand what you're saying. I get it. But the, like a brand of a business – it's the shallow part of a brand of a business, not the core values of the business. I don't think that is more grassroots, but the brand, the, the, the outside look. Visual image. Yes. Yeah. I don't think it's that important. For example, Cub, right? The name itself, Cub. It's mm. a, what the fuck does that even mean? Like obviously it's Club of United Business. It wasn't when we started, right? And, but so why does Cub work? Everyone calls it Cub. Mm. Only people who don't know it call it CUB. But anyone, any member or the people, Cub, like how is that a strategic thing other than you don't forget the name because it's fucking easy to remember. Yeah. You know, so – and so I agree on you as far as the, the whole branding thing. Yes, branding is great, but would I call that the – would I call it a key um, – for example, I hate the Amazon logo. I love Amazon, mm. but I hate the Amazon logo. I think it's ugly. I think it's shitty. But you, people may disagree, but, but I still love Amazon. I still use it. I think that, you know, well, okay, so, I mean, Quad Bike King, obviously, we're, I, I um, had uh, a survey of all our uh, some customers um, done. If you use a brand consultant, they tend to like to ask about 50 questions, you know, and we've all been through these surveys before, but I think that's just so they can pump up their fees. I asked yeah. them a single question, which was, uh, you know, when you um, purchased your tickets to ride on our experience, what was the emotional feeling that was gripping you at the time? Why, why, what motivated you to do it? And 97% of them responded with the word exciting excitement or something similar. So I, I, my brand strategy for that business is very simple. We don't do anything unless it's exciting. We don't say anything unless it's exciting. I don't like to see lots of pictures on my Facebook page unless they're exciting. Um, so, you know, we, we have a singular purpose there and I, I chase that very aggressively. Um, I really, uh, really, really love that. Mm. That is amazing. So you just go, you went to your customer, you said, what was the major motivator that made you purchase this? I wanted to have an exciting time. It was exciting for the band. And then you just said, that's the key word. Mm. Let's run with that. Yeah, it gives you a lot of focus, you know, and I'm sure if you ask your cub members, you might it's, know. It's family, belonging. They want to belong to a group of people like themselves. They all say something. I want to, I want to meet other people in my position, right. in my situation. That makes your, you know, your sales strategy, your marketing, your positioning very easy to understand. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, important. And I think, look, if we were to sum up a final lesson about how yeah, you can be, you're going to be you that question in my head. What would be the key thing to make your business a Success. Well, yeah, I think it's it is important to understand how you take this message out. But I would say of both my business partner Larry and myself that we were and continue to be singularly focused on revenue. Right. I am only. I wake up in the morning thinking, how can I make more money uh, for Quad Bike King? It's my singular focus. If you are not growing your revenue, you are dying. Mm -hmm. Um. 
And I don't really, I do care about everything else, but I assume everything else will follow. Um, and I'm the sort of person that, you know, I'm not good at crossing the T's and ticking the boxes. I, you know, my staff have to be good at that because you know, I don't look at the detail. Someone will sort that stuff out, but you have to be focused on growing revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, getting the fulfillment correct, it'll happen, it'll follow. But that is that is uh, what I wake up every day thinking about, and that's why I suppose we had that you know that that sales team shaped itself because I spent so much time thinking how can I make that sales team, you know, work for four or five solid hours in every eight hours and make me the most amount of money. That's where we ended up. Um, that is the aim of the game: bring in more than you let out. Hundred percent. Let's finish there. That was bloody fantastic. I honestly. Uh, I learned um, more than I was actually expecting to learn. That was brilliant. I really, well, really, I'm really, glad, really. I'm glad I can help there, Daniel. I, look, you know, if if anyone wants to approach me about anything, I'm always happy to help the members along in their business. Thank you so much, Charles. You're an absolute king. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good day.